Okay, any questions on Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 or really anything in Ephesians 1? Before we round the corner to 2 next week, anything? Oh, Trinity. Oh, you got, come on, man. You guys got to figure it out. Yeah, can you just get with it? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so my question is kind of Ephesians, but also outside Ephesians, looking at Revelations. So in Revelations, God uh, basically says, Church of Ephesians, uh, you've done some like wonderful things as far as like, looking like God. However, you lost the your love, first love, your first love. Yeah. So how can we like continue to like start looking like God, but also keeping in mind, like not losing our first love mm. in the midst of just trying to look like God? That is a fantastic question. Let's go start by looking at the passage you reference in Revelation chapter, is it two or three? Um, two? Okay. Let's take a look at it. Revelation 2, um, verse, right at the beginning, yeah. Chapter 2, verse 1. And there's going to be seven churches that the risen Lord is going to uh, address. Actually, before we do that, I want to look at the description of Jesus, just because we're so close, chapter 1. Then we'll do it. So we'll do a detour. Um, so go to chapter 1, verse... Um, 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his waist, his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place." So there's the description of the glorified risen Lord. And the very first um, letter that he's to write is in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So they're a doctrinally sound church. They're a faithfully suffering church. They test and expose 
false apostles. They are aware of false teaching in their day and they oppose it. And yet the Lord rebukes them for losing their first love. And tied in with that love clearly are actions they did in that love. And the reason I want to focus on that is he's not calling them simply to drum up feelings, but he wants them to repent and do the works that were outflows of that original love, right? You see that in verse um, five. So this is a love that produces action. The love has dried up some, and presumably those actions have dried up. He gets at the root. You need to refresh your love, but the call is to repent and then go do the things they did at first. So there's a, it's possible to be doctrinally sound, persevering in suffering, discerning, exposing and opposing false teaching, and still have your love grow cold and have your actions and your deeds of love grow cold as well. And then your question is, how do you, how do you guard against that, right? It's a great question. Um, I think, let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. I think um, it's by, even in Paul's prayer for today, there can be a danger, especially when you begin to know things in the Bible, especially when you've read a few books of, of theology, when you've gone to seminary, when you've taken some Bible courses at colleges. There's a sense at a certain point to think, okay, I pretty much know what I need to know. And then you start coasting. And, I, and one of the reasons why I think Paul is so emphatically concerned that the Ephesian church continue to know, the, the continue to grow in their knowledge of the hope of their calling and to grow in the knowledge of, of their inheritance and God's power is because that continued knowing is what keeps you from, from becoming complacent and your love growing cold. And eventually you know what Christians do and you just do it by rote. You do it because it's the pattern and you, you believe what's true and you confess it and you know it and you can articulate it and you can defend it and you can state it and it stops filling your heart with wonder. Um, so look, look at 2 Corinthians 3. And here is one picture of how sanctification works, how being changed into the image of Christ works. He's comparing, he's using the imagery of a veil, which is similar to that notion of seeing, eyes that see. And he compares the Jews who have the same scriptures he has, who don't see Christ in them from himself and us. And he says this, uh, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3. Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And that's, I'm tying that in with Paul's phrase of the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Well, here's a veil over their hearts. They're not seeing. Um, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And then look at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit who is the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, and so how do, you, how do we become more like Jesus? We see new glory, and then we begin to reflect what we see. So, so in Paul's thinking, sanctification, uh, and this isn't everything involved in sanctification, but one way of looking at our growth is we keep looking to God's word, we keep seeing glorious things, we keep seeing wondrous things, we keep seeing glory, 
And then that changes us. And I think the danger, the temptation can be to eventually think, you know, I've seen enough glory. I'd rather watch Wheel of Fortune. I'd rather find out how my favorite TV show ends. I'd rather watch the big game, whatever. And we start to lose our first love. And you still know what you knew, and you still can recite your creeds, and you still have these patterns of years of Christianity that you've walked in that you're probably not quickly going to walk away from, but what's thrilling your heart and your soul is no longer Christ and his word and his gospel, but other things. Maybe what's thrilling your heart and your soul is your family, your marriage. You know, maybe it's the, the season your team's having. I don't know. And that's, I think, how you can drift. So I, I think your question is great because we can never stop growing this way. If you go back to Ephesians, um, and again, man, we're gonna, we're, I don't, it's going to take us months to get through chapter 4 of Ephesians. There's so much in Ephesians 4. Um, I said last week it's the hokey pokey, and it is, it's what it's all about. Um, but, okay. Um, but what it's all about is, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The entire work of Christian ministry can be summarized right here. The building up of the body of Christ. Okay, to what extent? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is not something we will ever attain in this life. And the temptation can be that once you get the major issues up, you get the drug addictions taken care of, the infidelities taken care of, the porn taken care of, the big besetting ugly sins, what we fight aggressively, the addictions, to then sort of coast and just sort of, you know, deal much less zealously with the gossip, with the resentment, with the grumbling, with the worldliness, and just sort of, you're, not, you're, you're, you're losing your first love. You're, you're no longer thrilled by what you're seeing in God's word. But, but Paul's whole point is, no, we got to aggressively pursue this till we look like Jesus. You get to stop when you look like Jesus. Anyone want to stop? And it's a group community project as well. Um, but we get to stop when we look like Jesus, which is to say we keep going. Um, and, and Paul's priority again, and why I titled last week's message, How to Pray for Those with Everything, is... We can think if we don't have big, burning, sin-issue fires in our life that we can sort of take it easy for a bit now. And Paul says, I mean, again, get this. All he heard is a good report. They believe, they love the saints. And Paul is thankful, and he doesn't stop praying that they would have a better knowledge of their, their calling, their inheritance, and God's power towards them, which tells you his priority scale. That's the priority. He doesn't say, okay, well, you're, I'm sure there'll be trials, so enjoy the respite now while things are good. No, he's, he's wanting them to see and prepare and, and uh, to use another metaphor, get ballast in the bottom of that boat. Um, in, in Ephesians 4, he's going to use that imagery. Look at uh, verse 14. So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave, by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What a keel does in a boat, the ballast at the bottom of a boat, it keeps it stable, right? A boat without a keel or a rudder, without ballast, gets knocked about, but a boat with some weight in the bottom and a keel stays pretty stationary. And he doesn't want us to be like a, you know, you've seen a styrofoam cup in the middle of a lake in a windstorm? He doesn't want us to be that. 
And so the way we aren't like that, the way we get that ballast is by speaking the truth and love to ourselves and seeing the glory of God, seeing those truths in his word. So it's, I think it's the daily fight. This is a long answer, but it's a great question. It's the daily fight where every day I gotta get up and I gotta see something glorious. I gotta see something captivating. If I don't see something captivating in God's word, I will see something captivating in the world around me. That's all that marketing is. Advertising and marketing is trying to captivate people with lesser glories. So if you don't see something worth living for in God's word, you'll find it somewhere else. If you don't see something glorious and captivating in scripture, you will see it somewhere else. And it will begin to pull your heart. That's why I spent so much time at the beginning talking practically about how this works. It's not some mystical thing. When Paul says, through his spirit to your inner man, we can think, okay, this is, I gotta go out and fat, and get out in the middle of the wilderness. And you know, this, this comes through prayer, the word, and fellowship in the body. That, that's how this comes. Okay, that's, that's my medium-sized answer, Trinity. Does that work for now? Okay. Oh, Don. Uh, I got a two-parter. I got a question and then a comment. Uh, the question last week you talked about knowing, growing in knowledge, and kind of like continued on this week. And, but God is, is beyond knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we die, we will see him perfectly. So will our knowledge increase greatly, but we still will need all of eternity to totally know him. Just how does that okay. work? That's likely the way it works. I, I want to be, you want to be careful when you're stepping over the edge of what the text says. So what 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we know in part, we see through a glass dimly, then we will know as we are known face to face. The picture there is without mediation. The text of God's word mediates the knowledge mediates, standing in between. Christ mediates between God and man. The text, God's word, mediates between God and man. So I know who God is through the mediation of the word. The word tells me who he is. I won't need the word in heaven because I'll be face to face. Even as, as great of a window as the word is, God has not told us everything about himself in God's word, right? And there are some areas, according to, first, according to Peter, that are hard to understand. Some areas are not as clear, at least at the first reading to us. Then that any lack of clarity will be gone. But as finite beings, I, I, this, and this is now where we're stepping off the text and to speculation. I think it's, as long as you do it restri- reservedly, I think it's fair enough speculation. But I want to recognize, that's what the text says. First Corinthians, we'll know as we're known. By virtue of him being infinite and us being finite, the full knowledge of him would have seemed impossible for us to ever wrap our heads fully around. So, so great thinkers like Jonathan Edwards have surmised, is his guess, that part of the glory of heaven and part of why, because we tend to think, man, surely, as great as heaven is, after the eight billionth year, surely the, 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 the rose is going to have, to have lost its bloom. It's going to be a little boring. I mean, surely, eventually, it's got to sort of, you know, plane off. And um, Edwards, Edwards' theory is that every day, as fast as we're capable to, we'll be learning more and more of the wondrous excellencies of who God is, and we'll never exhaust that. So in, what, in fact, every day will be better than the last, because every day you will know more of this God. Um, he also theorizes, pure theory, that part of the ways of different levels of reward is that some of us will be advancing more quickly than others. 
We're all headed to the full knowledge of God. But some of us, our capacity and the speed at which we learn will be faster. So it's, we're dealing entirely with theory at that point. But it's at least a way of framing it. Um, but yeah, I don't imagine that we're just going to get zapped and suddenly be able to comprehend the omniscient God who is infinite. Um, I think he'd have to transfer omniscience to us, which I think is not something possible. Again, we're, we're speaking of things that are too wonderful for us. I'm, our best. It does not appear reasonable that we can become omniscient. So that what you've got is this, this sort of like a, do you know what an asymptote is? You ever see the XY graph and you've got that curve, right? Well, the asymptote is the curve, the line that ever draws closer to the X line. It'll always draw closer. It'll never reach it. And our knowledge of God, I think, is something that'll be like that for all of eternity. We'll ever be learning more, ever drawing closer, never reaching the full extent of it. And it's probably an exponential curve. Yes. We're just kind of... Yep. Uh, that, yep, yep. that mediation thing, that, that really makes a lot of sense for me. Uh, the other thing, the comment was, um, you know, knowing God and knowing him more. And then this week you talked about it leads to growth and obeying. And I think the one thing that kind of maybe got glossed over there is uh, when we come to Christ, we hear the gospel. And then we can believe it, but if we don't trust in it for right. ourselves... Right. It doesn't become real. Right. And so it talks in the Bible about how the just shall live by faith. And so I always see the Christian growth as trusting more and more in Christ and his promises. And first we need to know them through the word, but then the Holy Spirit applies that and our faith grows. Mm. And then that leads. And I know for myself, sometimes I get caught up in knowing all this stuff. Yeah. And not, but I think as we, as, and I think the other thing is when we sin, a lot of times we're not fully trusting in the promises we already know. Not a lot of times, every time. Every yep. time we sin. It's, uh, well, let me take what you said and press it even further. Sin, I would argue, is live down unbelief. In the mode of sin, we're not believing God. We simply aren't. Um, it, it's, for the believers, less do you believe in God or do you believe in Christ or not. It's varying degrees when I, when I act selfishly towards my wife in that moment, I believe the lie that even though Christ died for his bride and to serve and sanctify her, it's good for me to be served. In that moment, I believe that lie, right? So in the moment where I let her do the work and I don't take and lighten her load and I don't do it, in the moment where I'm selfish, I'm not believing the truth. I'm not. Um, and, and in the moment when I'm angry without cause... I'm believing vengeance is mine. I'm not believing vengeance is his in that moment. There may be plenty of other things I am believing, but I'm not believing that when I'm angry without cause. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if some of that growing cold yeah. is we know it, but we're not trusting in it totally. Right. I mean, we kind of lose trust. So, just. Well, I, I, think, I think the Christian life is, is two parts. One, knowing the truth, and two, believing and trusting the truth. And so I tend to think that people who know far, far less, I mean, we've got access with the internet and with books to a level of learning and reading and, and church history of writers over thousands of years that simply the Christians of, over the centuries never had, right? So the, and, and the ability to, to go to a seminary, the ability to go to a Bible college, the ability to listen to sermons online, watch YouTube, our ability to, to get information is, is unprecedented in the history of the church, right? And 
So you can't believe and enact what you don't know. So knowledge is a necessary piece. You need to know the truth. But the demons know the truth and hate it. The demons believe God is one and tremble. It's not enough to know the truth. You must love, believe, and embrace the truth. And so our, the, the Christian life is a constant movement of growing and learning things and growing and applying and believing things. And, and both pieces are critical. You can't just skip the knowledge and just go do stuff. But knowing stuff, which is what I think the Ephesian church in, in Revelation, their problem is they know a bunch of stuff, but the amount that they love, the amount that that knowledge is captivating their hearts and, and causing them to act in love is, is waning. Um, so I know people who are incredibly faithful to what they know. Uh, Christians who, for whatever reason, I'm thinking of uh, some folks I know in another state who are incredibly, some of the most faithful evangelists I know um, and are incredibly faithful to what they know. And I tend to think that they're far more pleasing to God than people like me who may know more, but the gap between what I know and what I do is much bigger um, than somebody who doesn't know nearly as much, but by goodness, they're doing the good they know to do. Jacob has something to say to that. He's like, they definitely are more pleasing than you, no doubt. Amen. Uh, just, just a question, um, and just to hear you explain it more. Um, so the process of sanctification obviously includes knowledge, being taught, understanding the word, and then putting that into practice in our lives, you'd agree? Yeah. Okay. So then as shepherds, it's pretty clear the what you know what the elders do in terms of giving knowledge and instruction and teaching. Could you describe what the elders' role in terms of helping us to grow in sanctification, how that looks, or, or could look. I mean, it's just, you know. Sure, sure. Um, well, I think, it's, I think it's, it's twofold. One, I'll deal with both wings of the plane or both blades of the scissors. Um, there's the simple question of what's being said in a text or what's being said in Scripture. What's he mean? Um, and, and, there's, there's simple, and that's the side of things that deal with grammar, verbs, thought process, tracking a flow of thought in a, in a text. Um, there's the portion that only the Spirit can do, which is the granting of seeing. But I think what we can do is, is hold it up, make it look as beautiful as it is, and pray and trust it captivates people's hearts. Like, here's this glorious truth. What I'm trying to do on a Sunday morning in a message, oh, he's getting the mic, is... Let me finish my sentence. He's okay. Okay, is is so. The next step would be trying to trying to extol and commend truth instead of just a dry. Well, this is what Paul. I mean, I could have got up this morning. This is what Paul's saying, and he's saying that this truth is this, and this is what you have, and this is what you have. And there might be some people who connect the math, penny drops, and light bulbs go on. The next piece, you're trying to, this is exciting. This is wonderful. This is, you know, heralding. And that's the notion of, of preaching that's heralding and um, is, is commending. And then, um, to varying degrees, helping people as they try to put it into practice, as people, you know, um, are trying to. I might have someone after service ask me about. Um, fellowship or about prayer or as it happens and and okay you talked about praying and being in the word and and having specific questions on how that works and and put in practice for other people that might be intuitive and obvious okay i need to read more um 
And so throughout the week, as I talk to people, oftentimes it's precisely in, I'm trying to put into practice what I saw is beautiful and I need some help. And so, yeah, go. Um, I don't know if this is too loud, uh, so I'm just going to hold it right here and not move it around. I keep hearing some kind of buzzing, but I don't know if that's me. Um, so I'm thinking of shepherding or the teaching that we get from the elders. Um, if, if I put it in, in like a, someone teaching me a skill, seems a good portion of learning that skill would be in the application of that skill. And I, I think we agree. I, I don't think I'm saying anything different than you. I'm just asking what that might actually look like in practice. Does that make sense? You know, I, you're asking me what teaching a skill looks like in practice. Yeah, and I understand part of it is hey, uh, knowledge and understanding of God's word. And then part of it, you're, what I understood you to say was part of it is <clears throat> as things come up and people come to the elders, you explain it or work through it with them. Is there more to the second part where you're training and teaching, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry that is hands-on and application-based? I'm sure there is. I'm oh, just yeah. asking uh, for what yeah. that might look like. Uh, it usually is involving life on life. It's, it's uh, usually in my home. It's usually um, in, in throughout the week, in, inviting people to come alongside, live with you, have meals at your table. Um, I, I think I know I've learned more on on parenting, more on being a husband, or at least as much in being in the homes of people who are modeling that, um, or or going from theory to this is what it might actually look like, you know. Um, and sometimes, I mean, the order can be totally reversed. I remember meeting the foils. Okay, then tell me how you did that. <laughs> you see it, and then you need the instruction. Other times, there's the instruction. And you're like, I have no idea what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, I'll show you what it looks like. Um, other times it may be obvious, like, hey, don't lie. I mean, so, I mean it's good, different things would be different things. And I think that's partly why there are certain issues of sin that we just assume, like, you know not to lie. I don't know how not to lie. Well, you probably have some idea how not to lie. Uh, maybe you need some help doing it. Other things may be far trickier. How do I rear my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? That's way trickier. How do I patiently endure suffering? That's, that's going to be trickier, too. Um, but I think this is why Sunday morning isn't the church. It's, it's an important part for the church. But if, if anything, Sunday morning, I'll use a Greg sports analogy here. There's this thing called a huddle that teams do. And, uh, and, and they determine play. Okay, But that's kind of what we're doing. We're huddling. We're, we're trying to exhort and encourage and then we go out and we run the plays throughout the week. And some of us may perfectly get, okay, I know what I need to do. They leave a message. They leave God's word. Like, I know what I need to do. Others, like, I know I need to do something. <laughs> but I'd also say that's, that's not even um, just from the top down. That's the whole body's work. So we're, 
in Ephesians, we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so there are some people who know exactly what to do. There are some people who don't know what to do. There are some people who are struggling with what to do. And we're all speaking the truth and love to each other. One of the values of us all hearing the, mess, the word preached is we know we heard the word preached. You know, why not just we all pick our favorite preacher and listen to, we all commit to listen to two sermons a week. And we can all listen and commit to sing one, along with one CD of praise music a week. Why do we need to gather on Sunday morning? Why wouldn't that do? You can find better preachers than me on podcasts. You can find better musicians than our worship team, in some senses, on, on, on CDs, right? Why do that? Well, one of the values is if we're supposed to speak the truth and love to each other, you know that Bridget heard the same thing you heard this week. And so you could reference and encourage her with that or, or vice versa, that we know that we know these things together. And so if you know that the person sitting next to you knows, just heard a word about anger and they're struggling with anger, you can, you can speak about that with a greater confidence than you could somebody who you don't know knew that. You know what I mean, so that's one of the values of what we're doing here is by learning it together and knowing that we're learning it together. It should facilitate. Um, no, no message from Patrice and Mitchell. It should facilitate us speaking to each other because you know at least some common content. But um, yeah, there there is. It's just being in each other's lives and being in each other's homes. If you, if you if you're struggling with these things, find people you think are doing them and. Go spend time with them or ask for help. If you see people struggling, get them into your home. Um, I, as somebody who's gone to seminary, I've learned as much or more being in the homes of godly people than I have from any classes I've gone to. Or, or at the very least, that's helped me learn, okay, I think this is sort of what that might look like um, than anything. So is that, I mean, obviously there's a ton more I could say. Is that getting us? So, yeah. Please don't think hearing a sermon is, okay, good. Um, it's, it's a piece, but it's not the thing itself. It's Because the, the hokey pokey, as I said, is the body speaking the truth and love to itself, building itself up in love. That's Everything else is, is moving towards that. Everything else is getting us to that. Only when that's happening are things working properly. Um, oh, Lee, and then Kyle. Oh, Kyle's got a mic, but... Okay, I'm going to try to put this into words, but you mentioned this morning us envisioning Christ more often as the resurrected, as the glorified, uh, as God, as Christ, rather than as uh, the man here on earth. And I feel like so many times, though, what I am comforted by is the leper being Mm. touched. Yes. Or... Uh, you know, just God being very personal in my life and and reaching down and and comforting me or whatever, yeah. uh, it, teaching me very personally, yes. uh, convicting my spirit, you know, those kind of things. And and as as you were talking about that, what came to my mind is is do you think that's part of us being ambassadors in this world? Is us being humbled servants? Yes. Impacted by the spirit of Look, God reaching out. Let me, let me qualify what I said. We, we get four Gospels, so we get four extended portrayals of the humbled God-man in, in veiled glory in flesh. And that's not for nothing, and so I don't want to for a second to say, envision Jesus less that way. It's the balancing act. There you see his compassion. There you see his patience. There you see his 
meekness. There you see his gentleness. There you see his um, humility, like you're going to see nowhere else. And we are to model that, and we are to uh, live that out as well. The flip side, however, is it's if I had to pick saying no to Jesus, it's easier to say no to that Jesus than the Jesus who shows up in Revelation 1. And so that's the flip side. Like, remember, the one to whom we are now dealing, the one to whom you are bringing your prayers, is the glorified Lord of all who is exalted above all. Even as, so it's, it's all balance. It's, our culture is very comfortable with the baby in the manger. And the baby in the manger is a wonderful truth. My, I'm not trying to say do that less. Maybe it'd be more of the more, the other as well. Is, um, it, it, I always cringe... When, when I hear people talking about what I call a high-five Jesus, you know, like, Jesus is all, all right, hey. And they talk about him and their relationship with him, like, you're dealing with the Lord of the universe. Yes, he's your older brother. Yes, he's um, a son of the Father, the son of the Father, and the firstborn of many brothers. But he's the, he's the Lord of glory. Uh, and it's, it's mainly just getting that balance in place. And I'm, my corrective this morning was more, I think culturally, we're a little too close on the familiar side and we could do well to... But yeah, you could go across the other end and be a Roman Catholic and be terrified of him. And, you know, they tend to, they tend to go too far that way, you know. Um, and it's, it's, of course, the both end. So yeah, we, we, we emulate his humility. We emulate his meekness. And we submit to him as the sovereign Lord of glory, not as a nice guy in the Middle East. That's, you have a king who looks a little different than he does in the Gospels. You and I have a king, even as we imitate mostly what he looks like in the Gospels. Is that where you're going? Does that, that, does that, does that make a bit more sense? Okay, that, that's all I'm trying to get at, is, um, is not getting so comfortable with a sentimentalized Jesus, balancing it off with he's terrifying to someone who loved him and put his head in his side, you know, as well as being loving and, I mean, it's just John falls on his face as if dead. Um, Balance, I'm sorry, I just keep looking for that text and I don't have one. Um, I'm getting text answers now, hold on. I'm assuming because it's a text answer, they want to remain anonymous. Um, this goes with your answer on how to learn a skill. Okay, it's a sermon. Okay, I gotta listen to. It. Thank you. Okay, just one oh, more. Okay, sorry. Um, so, yeah. so I, I think, um, so so here today we don't get that. We don't get to walk with Jesus and and be touched by him as the leopard mm. was or whatever. Right. right. Do you think that our role? Uh, that we serve that role in yes. the world today more we're, as we're, the humbled servants who are going to show compassion and love. Yes. Christ has to be exalted, and he is exalted. Um, and so is that... I think that's what it means to be his body. Mm-hmm. So as we function properly... I, here's the ideal. As we love lepers and the love unlovely, if we do it properly, it's Christ loving them. So that Paul can say of his evangelism in Second Corinthians 5... We implore you, God making his appeal through us, we beg you to be reconciled with God. So when our evangelism is functioning properly, God himself is making his appeal through Christ's body. So no, that's exactly the picture. And that's why it matters, because Christ wants his body 
you and I want our bodies, when I want to lift my hand, I want my hand to lift. I don't want it to go back here. And Christ has given his body instructions, and he wants his body to function and represent him. So no, the, the New Testament, and Paul is thinking in particular, is that we are his body, and so there's all sorts of implications because we're his body. And one of the implications is this finger has no business not liking this finger or that toe. But the other is we represent him. We image him. We, so Paul can talk in, um, in Colossians, Colossians, or is it Philippians? Philippians. This is somebody who went through the youth program with me. Look it up. Soaking up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I believe that's Colossians. Um, and like, what do you mean you're finishing up or fulfilling what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? And last week I referenced one of my top five sermons of all time. I'll reference another one. John Piper doing missions when dying is gain. And Piper's short answer is, what's lacking is nothing in the suffering providing the atonement, but the suffering that God has ordained to be the vehicle of the delivery of the message. And Jesus is not here personally present to present the gospel to his flock. We are. And the primary vehicle God has ordained by which the gospel goes forward is suffering. Um, Church history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so Paul envisions his suffering as a missionary, as part of that work that needs to be done to validate the message. The logic being, you're going to take someone seriously who suffered great pains to bring you an important message than somebody who you know, has every other reason to proclaim this message because it makes them rich, it makes them popular. But when suffering, someone at great, at great cost to self delivers a message to you, and the very act of delivering that message is the cause of their great harm, you're going to take that seriously. Um, okay, Colossians chapter, where is it? Um, 124. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Colossians 1.24. And so I'll post that up on Facebook later on today, but doing missions when dying is gain absolutely blew me out of the water. I mean, I can remember 20 years ago, sitting in Chris Powell's living room with Adam Torrey. Yes, that Adam Torrey. And listening to that, and all three of us just sort of sitting there with our jaws dropped at the end for like 10 minutes in silence afterwards going, whoa, <laughs> it's heavy. Anyway. Um, but So but, would you say the humility demonstrated by Christ in personal lives when he was walking here on earth, the, the, the humility, compassion, and mercy that he demonstrated is now our role today. Yes. Uh, that he moves through us, through the Spirit, yes. obviously, not our power, but his. But that's our role today as Ab- ambassadors, is to demonstrate that in the personal lives. of. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lee, bring us home. Oh. This is probably too weird, but uh, we're talking about <clears throat> knowledge and obedience and all the those two big issues. And my the thing I struggle with occasionally, or, or pretty much my whole Christian life, is that I know what I believe. I totally am on board with everything the Bible says and teaches, and I'm attempting to walk that way and obey that way. But I, I find lacking in my life, or maybe it's just the way I am, is there's not always an emotional connection to God. Mm. That, well, yes, do you love Jesus? Well, love him in the sense that 
I thank him and I appreciate what he did for me. But, you know, it's like, do I really, it's just hard. I don't know if I'm just a cold, unfeeling person, which could entirely be possible. But I don't know, I don't know if I'm, if other people struggle with that, that how do you really love God that it's, it's so big, it's so far away sometimes. So just a struggle. I mean, there's moments like during worship and, and singing and that I'll really feel, you know, have those, that emotional tug and fullness, but not generally in my day-to-day life. Right. So. And okay, that's a huge question. Yeah. Um, I'll give you the short answer. The, the person who I know deals with this issue the best is, in my mind, John Piper living. John Piper deals with the balance between deep understanding and deep feeling better than any living person I know. Um, my short answer would simply be um, we, we need to recognize the importance of that and cultivate that. It won't be our 24-hour day-to-day existence. Just like being overcome with passion for my wife is not a 24-hour-a-day experience. But if I went many days and weeks without feeling any of that, something definitely is wrong. You know what I mean? And so I'd say in a similar way, there's mountaintops emotionally and valleys emotionally. But if you're in like a five-year valley, that probably is not a good indicator. <laughs> and there are other people who just like are like addicts to the mountaintop, you know, and they just almost will try to stir up feelings. That's not going to be helpful either. Um, that's my short answer because we're over time, but I'll get more to you. That's a great question. What? Oh, dear. Okay. Yes, Matthew, I will make a special dispensation. No, no. You get one. You get one. I'll compromise between the two of you. One, I sir. mean, like, they all kind of tie into with each other, so it's oh. just one. Hold on like, a sec. You're dismissed. Matthew, what's your question? Cool. <laughs> so you talk about the spirit of wisdom and knowledge. Like, what does that look like in comparison to, like, simply being the guy who studies the Bible, like all of us, I feel like could fall into the trap of, I'm just going to read the Bible and not actually have the wisdom and the growth and maturity that goes with that. How do we stop from falling into that trap? Kind of, how do we know that we're actually growing in that spirit of wisdom and not just kind of doing what the Catholics do where reading and praying and attending mass is part of what you do because it's expected. How do you, what's, how do we keep from falling into that trap? and know that we're following what we're supposed to do, kind of, if that makes sense. Yes. The very, very brief answer, because of time, is, I, I, okay, I'll use myself as an example. I know how to do exegesis. I know how to diagram and translate, parse verbs, figure out the structure. I can look at this and structurally figure out and get this purpose clause to it connected to a finite verb with three participles that are subordinate underneath it, getting relative clauses, lining up Paul's thinking, I can do that without the aid of the Spirit. Um, what Paul's envisioning requires the Spirit. The temptation for me is to think, I, I've got this method, and now I can turn the crank, and out comes truth, and that truth will change me. And I think that is a helpful skill. I'm glad I know that. But I need to daily be dependent. The first step is, is humility. I, if the Spirit doesn't open my eyes, if I don't daily pray, open my eyes, behold wondrous things in your word, I'm dead in the water, man. Like, if God doesn't, if the Spirit doesn't give that strength, this is what I'm saying. You, this isn't a matter of getting the right devotional book or hearing the right sermon illustration that touches people's heartstrings. This is something only the Spirit of God can do. Now, the Spirit is pleased to do this. These are prayers I think He always answers, but I need to recognize day by day 
all of my study and commentaries and parsing of verbs is going to profit nothing unless the Spirit grants that wisdom. The second would be, is it resulting in the things that the Scripture says it should result in? And I'll close with this. Go to that Colossians passage. Uh, Colossians um, chapter uh, 2. Remember I showed you this morning how being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell on you richly results in very similar things. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and then in Colossians 2 what, um, Colossians 3, I'm sorry, Colossians 3.16, what hallmarks accompany true knowledge. And so the other thing I'd say is, is your study, is my study resulting in this? If it's not, it may not be very profitable. So Colossians 3, 16 and 17, we'll close with this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what you got are a bunch of participles, which are attendant circumstance. This is what is accompanied. This is what it looks like when you're doing this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in their hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now those are the, the accompanying works and signs of letting the word of Christ join you richly and in, in Ephesians of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. So if you see that accompanying your study, things are well. If you're learning stuff and that's not happening, that's precisely the trap I think you're talking about. But that we are over time. We can talk more, but, but think, no, you're welcome. Thank you, everybody.